0: Hey, Rich Lowry here. If you're like me, you're a last-minute Christmas shopper and a terrible gift wrapper, but let me make this easy for you. You know the gift everyone wants? It's a better night's sleep. Bone Branch never disappoints with the highest quality sheets, blankets, pillows, and throws. Plus, their holiday packaging makes your gift look and feel Special, I got to tell you, Balm Branch sheets meet my standards, but much more importantly, they've met my wife's standards. Husband and wife team Scott and Missy Tannen founded Balm Branch to create a new standard in bedding by doing things the right way, not the easy way. Balm Branch holds themselves to high standards across the board from sourcing pure organic cotton to putting workers' rights first. And it's not just their sheets that are made the right way, their pillows, bath towels, and robes are too. So treat yourself and your loved ones to the new standard embedding from Ball & Branch. Their gifts come wrapped and ready in their special holiday packaging. Order by December 19th for guaranteed delivery by Christmas. Shop the holiday semi-annual sale from December 9th to December 15th and get 20% off at ballandbranch.com That's B-O-L-L-andbranch.com and Exclusions may apply. Please check it out.
1: Welcome to you, Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Charlie, two things I want to get through before we move on to the actual political news today. Um, one is the subject of, of walking, which we'll get to here in a second. But um, before that, I know you are you're officially on Team America now and have been for a while. But since we still call this Mad Dogs and Englishmen, I have to ask you a question about your your fellow countrymen, or your former fellow countrymen and kind of what exactly is up with them. So Boris Johnson, as you probably know, announced a new um, anti-drug initiative, kind of, a you know, get tough on crime, war on drugs uh, sort of thing. And um, not to relitigate that whole issue, but it is, you know, kind of what it is. There's some good policy. there, some not very good policy. But um, someone was describing, and I don't know who this was. It was, uh, I guess, a British broadcaster and also some kind. Was talking about the you know the, the drug situation in the UK and there's you know problem with addicts and such things. But Johnson apparently is also interested in trying to take measures against um, so-called lifestyle users, as they called them. And the person who was uh, talking about this um, policy identified these people as typically educated, affluent professionals whose drug use is limited to you know the occasional dinner party. What I wanted to ask you was, you know, I've been to a lot of dinner parties. You know, I lived in New York. I lived in Las Vegas. I spent a lot of time in Aspen. These are all, you know, kind of drug-using places. I've never once been to a dinner party where someone was like, you know, cocktail, glass of champagne, or maybe, you know, some smack. Have you not? <laughs> no, I've never once been to a dinner party where there were like, you know, uh, hors d'oeuvres and a line of cocaine. I have <laughs> been
2: to Is literally those dinner parties. Really? So I saw that in response to this initiative, someone put out the news that traces of cocaine were found all around the Houses of Parliament. Mm -hmm. Which shouldn't surprise anyone. And it reminded me of the study they did while I was at Oxford, of Oxford University. And there were traces of cocaine everywhere. Mm. The Oxford Union, the debating society... You barely move for traces of cocaine. And in fact, that was one of, because I wasn't especially political before that, that was one of the first red flags for me on the drug war because everyone I knew had either tried drugs or knew someone who had tried drugs, usually expensive yuppie drugs like cocaine. Mm -hmm. It was easy to get hold of if you wanted it. People did hold those dinner parties, I suppose. And I read the local newspaper. And the juxtaposition between the casual way in which some people used cocaine and the stories about how eight miles away in the really poor and crime-ridden areas around Oxford People were being locked up for years for dealing or possessing cocaine, appalled me. Hmm. And I thought, well, that's really out of line. Now, in America, of course, the fault line, the original sin, is race. And so when we talk about the drug war here, we often talk about what it has done to whites versus blacks. But in England, the fault line, the original sin, is class. And so that was what struck me was this profound difference you would see these newspaper articles in which the police officer holds up a bag of cocaine that says we got this and the perpetrator is going to go to prison for seven years and i would think well that would probably last about two nights in certain parts of oxford university (laughs) and and now i don't have a problem with that by the way i i I, i'm not really a drug guy i'm a, a wine and and cocktails guy but I don't have a problem with it, and I would legalize it, but I don't want it just legalized for you know, wealthy people. Well, or not everyone at Oxford is, of course, wealthy, a lot of scholarships, yeah. but w- well-positioned people. Yeah. So, yes, I do sort of know what you're talking about. I mean, no, people didn't bring around a tray with canapes and cocaine on it, but, yeah, I've been at dinner parties where people have been very openly doing lines of coke. Huh.
1: Yeah, I guess maybe in my experience it's more of a um, bar or nightclub sort of thing.
2: Well, that too. Um, that too.
1: Yeah, that's you know pretty common. But um, I've never like been to a dinner party where that's been a thing. Huh. Okay. Well, just kind of curious. Different different strokes for different countries, I suppose, and uh, that's why um that's why we've got different countries. Um, creepy though. One of the things that Johnson apparently wants to do. Um to, to sanction the so called lifestyle users is take
2: away their passports. Ah, that's really, really that's a bad slope.
1: Yeah, that is not like a very good idea at all.
2: And what is a lifestyle user? That is a uh, that, person that's... who just uses it dinner parties. Right. So so this is a slightly strange. As opposed to an addict, I suppose right no, i mean i heard I heard what you you said at the beginning that precipitated that that conversation, but how is that defined in the law? How do you prove that?
1: No idea, I suppose that it's um I would bet that it ends up being effectively a difference between possession and um
2: distribution
1: the way we do in the in American law
2: It's also interesting that because typically. At least historically, drug wars have focused on the production and distribution side of it and almost seen the users as victims.
1: Yeah. Well, that apparently is changing in Johnson's UK.
2: I wonder what's precipitated that.
1: Um, well, the... Um... A number of people seem to think it's, it's, a, it's a relatively um, cynical ploy that he's got a few things going on, the scandal with the holiday party and all that, and that this is intended as mainly uh, reach out to uh, right-wing voters and to um, you know rile up the rubes and such.
2: I mean, look, Kevin, I, I don't want to accuse the man of anything he hasn't done, and I am, of course, not in any position to know, but I would be absolutely shocked if it were the case that i had been to that sort of dinner party and seen it but boris johnson had not <laughs> 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 boris johnson is the poshest man in the world
1: <laughs> yeah you get the feeling uh, you get the feeling that you know sort of cocaine was his running mate but um <laughs> i mean Maybe not literally, but he's he's definitely a, a sort of cocaine kind of politician, isn't he? I mean, someone whose affect—if you had to relate Boris Johnson to a drug, not to say that he's actually a drug user, because um, again, there's no way of knowing—but you know, I would say that the drug that is his, uh, his sort of spirit animal drug, is definitely cocaine.
2: I think so. Uh, I, I often say to people, in in one sense, I went to university in the 1920s, now, Oxford. I don't know what it's like now but it it had changed but it hadn't changed that much it, it reminded yeah. me really of the school I went to between the ages of 6 and 13 which honestly I don't just mean aesthetically but structurally linguistically had not changed much since the mm. the 1920s and Oxford was like that too and it had that bright young things atmosphere where the drug people use is cocaine and the drink people use is champagne and you know people do eat canapes it's it's an absolute (laughs) stereotype and his life as an old Etonian who came from an upper-class borderline aristocratic family must have been more like that than I could possibly ever imagine yeah
1: uh, speaking of the 1920s, that's a good uh, segue into uh, the next thing I wanted to ask you about. So I live in a very, um, by American standards anyway, old neighborhood in which the neighborhood and the houses were um, built largely between the wars and uh, mostly between 1950 and I guess in 1930. Um, wasn't a lot of building going on during the Depression, so not a lot of uh, houses that were built in that era. So consequently, it's a very uh, walkable place because there were cars around them, but they weren't ubiquitous, and we hadn't gotten to the post war thing of building to the scale of the automobile of organizing communities and neighborhoods and such around uh, cars and driving but you know the rest of uh Dallas or much of the rest of Dallas is very much a you know post war automotive scale um city. And so I had an appointment earlier today, and I went to the wrong address. Um, Sidebar here, by the way. You know, I'm I'm generally pretty pro technology, and um, and I I like technology, and I like that sort of stuff. But um, there are a couple of small ways in which um, it makes the world worse, and I've written about this. Some one is um, particularly in cities like New York, taxis where um, GPS is just completely displaced any need for local knowledge. So you get a lot of people, um, often immigrants, who don't really know the city very well, but they hire them to be taxi drivers um, because they've got GPS, and they figure just put it in there and you can go. And that sometimes leads to comical things. Like when I was living in New York, I had just lots and lots of taxi drivers who didn't know about you know where City Hall was, or where the Empire State Building was, or where Grand Central was—things like that—they would just look at you like they had no idea what you're talking about because they didn't, and ask for uh, for cross streets. So, which is a long way of saying I was at the wrong place today because I put in the name of the uh, place I was going into my Apple Maps, and it actually went to the wrong address. But the place I needed to be was pretty close uh, by. But it was one of those deals where. Um, to walk there in any sensible way would require you to go about a mile and a half to get a quarter mile, you know, to avoid, you know, walking over a six lane road or, uh, you know, something like that. And, um, you know, no sidewalks, you have to walk alongside uh, big highways, that sort of thing, very pedestrian, hostile uh, kind of environment. And I really, Dislike that. I mean, there are places where it makes sense, of course. Um, you know, if you're Los Angeles, you're going to have freeways. If you are, you know, another big city, you're going to have freeways, and they're not going to be nice places to to walk alongside. But I wonder if at some point this is a, um, you know, a point of agreement between, uh, you know, kind of market oriented conservatives such as myself, who understand that um, a lot of our urban development patterns. And suburbanization and sprawl have been driven by central planning, and government subsidies to um, the highway system, to um, you know, kind of urbanist left wingers who um, would like to see you know more mass transit and uh, denser development and that sort of thing. And also, I think maybe even some of these traditionalist conservatives who dislike the um, you know ugly, highly commercial aspects of the way in which our our cities and and suburbs have developed, um, particularly in the post-war era, this, you know, this kind of, you know, sense of anonymity and disconnectedness. Um, You were mentioned having gone for, um, I believe you said a 15K walk uh, earlier in the day. So I was wondering if you had any, any thoughts about that and the idea of walkability. Of course, you live in Florida, which is famous for being the opposite, but there are communities within Florida, I suppose, that are, um, you know, much more tolerable, especially a lot of Miami. I find, like Coconut Grove and places like that.
2: Well, that's where I was walking. Was in my little community. Yeah, it's different on the beach too, because I could walk down the beach. Well, actually, sure. forever. I would sort of get around the other side and keep going to Houston up. eventually. Yeah, I think there's sometimes a mistake made by free marketeers in that they assume that the way things are is the product of a completely open, unencumbered market rather than of other choices. Mm-hmm. And in the case, certainly, of Florida, that's not true. One of the reasons Florida has so many strip malls is zoning regulations encourage them. How how do they do that? Well, Historically, those sorts of buildings were much easier to construct if you did it by the side of the highway just outside of town in a line i'm not quite sure of the particulars but mm. this is a complaint you hear a lot in florida about those strip malls is well, what, what, why are they there well they're there because that's what the zoning regulations say um they should look like so they do it, it's not as if we have a, a free for all. I, I know Houston is not an actual free for all, but Houston's actually closer to a a free for all, where yeah, you can point. to I mean, to you it. still got a building code and that kind of stuff, and some
1: some you know zoning restrictions and stuff. Right,
2: I but much. if if you want to criticize Portland, Oregon, though, you say, look, this is what happens when you lock everything down too much. And if you want to criticize yeah. Houston, you say, well, this is what happens when you don't lock things down at all. Yeah. So the the anti-free market argument, if that's your position, is Houston, but Mm -hmm. it's not Florida, and it's not England either, which has its own zoning regulations, and it's not, obviously, San Francisco, although it was amusing, and I know you pointed this out, when Ezra Klein managed to turn that into conservatism. Right, yes because it was conservative with a small C. (laughs) So it's our fault as well, even though we oppose it all.
1: Silly stuff. Yeah, there are, um, I mean, of course, we talked a lot about, you know, the issue of unintended consequences of um, regulation and unintended consequences of of government program design. I was thinking about this. um, There were some Italians who were complaining about EU farm policy. And basically their complaint was that subsidies are based on the size of a farm, you know, X number of, is it hectares? Is that how it's pronounced? I always see that word, but I don't think I've ever said it out out loud, Um, which, you know, according to this analysis, just encourages bigger and bigger uh, agricultural operations rather than, you know, smaller and more diverse ones, that sort of thing. And these are, you know, complaints, you hear similar complaints about American farm policy where we essentially encourage, five great big, uh, commodity crops, um, which have become, you know, more or less, uh, semi-industrial factory operations at the expense, or at least while ignoring uh, the interests of, you know, smaller farmers and things like that. And I think there's, you know, an aspect of that that maybe is worth talking about when it comes to, um, you know, land use, uh, Highway building, especially, um, as you know, it's my, my one great complaint with Dwight Eisenhower. It's the interstate highway system, which I think was a mistake and has really distorted our um, you know patterns of, of growth and development. That is maybe something where there's there's some some room and opportunity for a genuine, you know, kind of bipartisan and, and cross ideological uh, conversation and maybe even some points of agreement.
2: So I just found, Kevin, the answer to your question as to why this happens. And I think Mm -hmm. it would lead to exactly that sort of agreement. Uh, This is apparently the product of blunt single-use zoning regulations. Gotcha. So apparently, Florida strictly separates residential, commercial, and industrial use. Mm -hmm. And they limit where commercial retail can be to a few roads running in and out of suburbs and cities and so people use them and they get built and then they become part of the landscape and was ever thus yeah
1: that's interesting because you know if you if you look at what people um prefer it's almost always you know kind of mixed use environments i mean there are people who really want to be out in in the country i understand that but um People like to be close to, you know, restaurants and other sorts of amenities and things like that, rather than having these places where you're, you know, 10 miles away from the nearest uh, grocery store or restaurant or coffee shop or something like that, because you're surrounded by, um, you know, single use, uh, single family housing and that kind of thing.
2: Yes, I'm quite lucky here, I think because we live on the beach, that there is a real mix of shops and restaurants and drive throughs and banks and what you will some of them are in strip malls but not too near me yeah um
1: you know i mean it's kind of i don't think there's any place in the country where there's not you know a lot of strip malls with very few exceptions of places who have been really shaped by their um geography like manhattan and san francisco where you just don't have room for that
2: no you don't no they have their own problems because the people who live there don't want anyone else to live there and so they lock right. them out
1: And they make it very expensive yeah uh yeah i remember having that conversation with someone um might have been in san francisco you know talking about you know conservatives in texas and arizona and places like that in florida living in their gated communities. And I said, "You live in a gated community. It's called San Francisco, and the gates are economic. They're not. Um, they're not physical, but it's um, the same effect."
2: Well, also, there's not a great difference between a gated community and a doorman building. Well, that's true. One's that's true. vertical, the other's horizontal, <laughs> but they're basically the same thing.
1: When you lived in New York, did you uh, did you have a doorman?
2: Not until I got married. Okay. When I was living on my own, I didn't. But then until I moved in with my wife, I uh, didn't have an elevator either. And I lived on the fifth floor. And that in the summer was often a challenge. Not as much of a challenge as not having an air conditioning unit, which was also the case. Ah.
1: What part of town were you in?
2: Well, I moved around. When I first moved to America, I lived in Williamsburg in Brooklyn. Then I moved to Chelsea. 18th and 8th
1: and was this the fifth floor place
2: that was the fifth floor place and then eventually i moved to park avenue which wasn't as grand as it sounds it Was nice though
1: yeah um hmm. so a man from chelsea who moves in with his wife it's not the usual development no and i must say that
2: stereotype person. is absolutely true i lived there for two years and it's astonishing yeah. It's just it's where a
1: very very gay neighborhood.
2: Yeah, it's just it's like the first time you go to San Francisco and you say, "Oh yeah, this is this is true." Yeah, that's true.
1: Um, all right, should we move on and talk about some actual uh, politics?
2: Well, I've been pleased to see some Democrats, not just Joe Manchin, although often including Joe Manchin, stand up and say no. They seem to have learned the word this week. It is what Thursday. And already, Democrats have killed Joe Biden's nomination of Saul Omarova to be controller of the currency. Five of them did that: Kirsten Cinema mm. and Mark Kelly of Arizona, John Hickenlooper of Colorado, John Tester of Montana, and Mark Warner of Virginia. Joe Manchin is, and who knows if he'll follow through, pouring cold water all over. The bill Back Better plan, at least this year, saying he's not sure it's necessary. It needs to be scrubbed, his word. And yesterday, Manchin and John Tester joined 50 Republicans in the Senate to reverse President Biden's vaccine mandate. Now, that won't go through because the House isn't going to do the same. And even if it did, I assume President Biden would veto it. But That's quite a lot of no's from the president's own party in the space of three days.
1: It is. And that's an encouraging thing, Um, in spite of the fact that um, I tend to agree with them on on the policy things when you see Manchin and those types disagreeing with Biden. It is just good in general, irrespective of the policy specifics, to see members of Congress standing up to a president of their own party. This is a... um, trend in and in a, in a, an approach to politics that should be encouraged and celebrated.
2: Yeah, and on two fronts. Firstly, it's good to be independent of cults or factions. And when parties become cults or factions, we need people who will say no. But more broadly, and more important, in fact, than that, with apologies to George Washington, the separation of powers that is the core of our system not only relies upon such behavior, but presumes it. It would be absurd uh, to James Madison were he to, well it would be absurd because he's dead, but were he to learn (laughs) that the only point at which Congress seems to regain its self-respect is when the president is of a different party than the majority. Yeah. And the only point at which the executive branch is investigated by Congress is if the president is of a different party than the majority. Madison would have said, no, that's not how it works, you see, because uh, ambition counteracts ambition and people are much more jealous of the prerogatives of their branch than they are of the prerogatives of their faction. And unfortunately, we would have to say, well, I'm afraid that's not true. So, when yeah, Maybe you see, it needs to be
1: true, I suppose.
2: Oh, I think it did, but but although it quickly devolved. But when you see Joe Manchin standing up to Joe Biden, it, it, it's really not as unusual as the Ezra Kleins and uh, Jamal Bowie's of the world would have it. Joe Biden's approval rating in West Virginia is nineteen percent. The approval rating of his big legislative. Goodie bag, the Build Back Better plan, is 24%. Of course, Joe Manchin is going to be skeptical. Now, whether he follows through and does it anyway, we'll find out. But of course, he's going to be skeptical. And the key point here, and I feel this very strongly as a Brit who grew up in a parliamentary system, a fused system with no separation of powers, where the executive branch is drawn from and sits within the legislature. There is nothing incumbent upon Joe Manchin simply because the president happens to be of his own party. It doesn't matter who the president is. Joe Manchin was re-elected in 2018. Since that time, we've had two presidents. In England, it is much more uh, understandable why politicians go along with their party because if enough of them don't, the majority collapses, there's a vote of no confidence, and they might find themselves on the minority benches. But that's not true of Joe Manchin. He is not reliant for his position on a prime minister. He is reliant for his position solely upon the people of West Virginia. And he will, if he wants it, um, keep that job until the next time he has to ask them for their approval. And so... When you read these outraged statements from people such as Bernie Sanders, it's a disgrace that Joe Manchin is holding up i mean firstly he's not he's doing it along with you know the majority but hmm. it's not a disgrace <laughs> that's his job
1: yeah also I hate it when i when you get these lectures from Bernie Sanders of all people, you know um when you have a Democrat holding up a fellow Democrat you're not even in the party
2: well that's true. <laughs>
1: Jerk. Uh, mind your own business. But You, you but, wonder uh,
2: with Bernie, does he believe that we elect a party and then that party, like a Politburo, gets to be in charge until such time as it's not?
1: I think that is essentially what he
2: believes. I think so too. Yeah. You know,
1: it's interesting if you think about the, um, not to change the subject, but maybe take a slight detour, the new German government that's uh, coming in. I guess it was just... Uh, Officially installed yesterday was it or the day before maybe? It's a weird coalition, you know. There's the old uh, proverb that the difference between the United States and the parliamentary systems is that we form our coalitions before the election, they form their coalitions after the elections. And there's some some truth to that, but I think you know from the United States point of view, where we have this sort of supercharged partisanship and this tribal affiliation. With our political parties, it's really hard to understand, you know, a situation like what, what's happening in Germany right now. So Olaf Scholz, who'll be the new, who's the new chancellor, um, was vice chancellor in Angela Merkel's government, but he was the leader of a rival political party. So you know, she was the representative of the, um, essentially, their conservative party, and he's the socialist party. And the new government it is a three-way coalition between the Socialists, the Greens, and the German version of the Libertarian Party, essentially. And uh, it's
2: like a buddy movie. It's a weird mix,
1: you know. It's a weird mix. And um, the German version, of the Libertarian Party, the Free Democrats, as they're known, is um, is by small, by far the, the smallest of those three, but they have the second most powerful position, which is the uh, you know Finance Ministry, and trying to imagine some sort of um, equivalent arrangement in the United States, really very difficult to do, I think.
2: I think it is, although, as you said, we do have our own version of this. And in some ways, it's playing out now in that the Senate's 50-50, but is functionally democratic because the vice president breaks the tie. And what it is trying to do thus far, mercifully, with no success, is get Joe Manchin on board with a spending bill that was written by Bernie Sanders.
1: Yeah.
2: We talk about the parties as Republican or Democrat, as if every Republican is John Cornyn and every Democrat is Chuck Schumer, but that's not how it works in practice. Well, know, if you think about it, that's
1: kind of an interesting... Aspect of the dynamic, so the parties are less diverse than they used to be. Uh, They're much more ideologically and politically homogenous than they were, say, forty years ago, fifty years ago. Um, But the diversity within the parties is seen as much more of a problem now than it was then. So you've got Democrats who agree ninety percent of the time on ninety percent of the things, but that remaining um, area of debate and disagreement is a huge, huge problem for them. And, um, you know, it's probably going to end up with a situation where 20 years from now or 10 years from now, or next year, that figures such as Manchin and Cinema and any other, um, you know, slightly non-conforming, slightly dissident voices are just simply unwelcome in the party and unable to, uh, to get elected as Democrats in the same way that you've got on some issues, anyway, really effective ideological uniformity in the Republican Party now.
2: Yeah, although people who say that Joe Manchin is acting in some strange way, that Kirsten Sinema is acting in some strange way, seem to have forgotten that the problems that Joe Biden is facing are exactly the same problem that Donald Trump faced. That yeah. the first major legislative push, not that he was really behind it, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell were, of the Trump peers was the Obamacare repeal bill, which was killed by a maverick senator from Arizona who put his thumb down on the Senate floor. It all sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it?
1: Yes, that's true. Well, you know, and this isn't, of course, that unusual, historically speaking. If you think about the 19th century, you had a Republican Party that was in Congress, anyway, effectively two different parties. Yes. Um, you know, at the end of the Civil War and the in the, um, in the uh, Reconstruction era where the radicals and conservatives were not only in disagreement, but they had essentially different internal organizational structures. So you had factions within the party that were essentially separate parties. And in the 20th century, of course, you've got Democratic Party um, with some very, very different elements. Uh, In it and in disagreement on some of the most important issues of that period. So I can't, you know, I'm trying to decide hmm, how to put it. I think having more political and um, ideological diversity within the parties is probably a good thing. Um, But I think what's really missing that makes that um, difficult to realize the benefit from. Is the fact that the political parties are organizationally and structurally so weak now that um, they can't really um, they can't really act as mediating agencies in a way that they used to.
2: I think that's the key, and I think it's separate from the ideological question.
1: Yeah, and that's—I mean—that uh, of course is the great lesson of 2016 and Trump, which is that you know for all the talk about the establishment. If there were a Republican Party establishment that had any kind of power, um, any real ability to set the agenda or um, even control its own nominating process, I mean, Donald Trump wouldn't have been within a country mile of the nomination.
2: There's a paradox here in that Citizens United was clearly correctly decided on First Amendment grounds, but the consequences mm-hmm. of it have, I think, been much worse for the republican party than the republican party anticipated and i would not counsel changing it because the first amendment is written down and it's the role of judges especially the supreme court to uphold it but one of the consequences of citizens united has been a diminishment in the power of the parties as you suggest at the expense um, or rather i should say to the benefit of outside groups and um and I Donald Trump was a manias. was a beneficiary of that and and it's led to a very strange system a system that is not uh, on display anywhere else in the world it's not in this form where parties have almost lost control over who runs under their banner yes in, firstly in britain the parties are private <laughs> their elections are private they're not tied up with the government. There's no such thing as registering as a conservative voter or a Labour voter or a Liberal Democrat or a Green voter. You register to vote, and that entitles you to vote in a a general election or referendum or a local election. And then if you want to vote in the Conservative Party elections, you join the Conservative Party and you pay it dues in the way that you would pay Netflix. In America... The parties are public in one sense. The electoral systems that they use internally are tied up with the state. And we've reached the point at which those parties are in some cases legally unable and in other cases morally unwilling to kick out people that don't or shouldn't represent them. Well, that's not the case in the UK. In the UK, you can say, no, we just don't like you. Of course you can't run under our banner, go run somewhere else. But here you can't. And so I could declare tomorrow in the state of Florida uh, to run under the Republican banner. And the Republican Party of Florida would find it pretty difficult to get rid of me if I garnered enough support. That's weird. Well, I, I don't think
1: they'd want to get rid of you. I think a better example would be if you chose to run as a Democrat.
2: Well, that's true. That's true. But I I, I didn't so much mean that there's something... Well, of
1: course, Florida is the great example of this because you've got Charlie Crist, who's run as both Republican and Democrat, and neither party wants him.
2: Yeah, and he's going to run again. I have to say, I'm not especially good at predictions, although I did get the last election almost exactly right. But uh, You're going to predict Charlie Crist loses? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I would be shocked. Yeah. If Charlie Crist won, he may win the primary because his opponent is the conspiracy theorist and general, um, well, it's Nikki Freed. Yeah, she's yes. a kook. I mean, last Friday, in the space of about three hours, Nikki Freed managed to take a photograph with Rebecca Jones and then go on Joy Reid's show to argue that Ron DeSantis was setting up a Gestapo. She is out there. Yeah. Crazy people. Yeah, I
1: remember, you know, Chris ran as a Republican and ran as a Democrat. And you could just sort of see the libertarians going, well, we're not going to take him. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Here's your problem. Uh, We don't want this guy. Um, Should we talk about your class? You're doing class on the Second Amendment?
2: I am. I am. It is with us. Assessor Charlie. Yeah. Something like that. It's such a smaller Republican topic that I think the titles would somewhat undermine it. I should become Chuck to teach it. But uh, teach it, I will. You're
1: you're the least Chucky Charlie I know.
2: I know I am, but that's what people who hate me call me. That's what they go to online or if they send me rude emails. Hey, Chuck. Yeah. (laughs)
1: there's no way by the way with your accent for you to say chuck without sounding disdainful
2: there's nothing wrong with the the name chuck in fact i know lots of great chucks it's just that i can't pull it off in the same way as there's nothing wrong with y'all but i can't say it because i sound absolutely ridiculous anyway i will be teaching a four-week class on the history of the second amendment with this startup called chapter um it is asynchronous, which is a fancy way of saying that I won't be lecturing. It's not set at particular times of the day. Everything that um, we will do can be done at at any point by those who sign up and indeed by me when I respond to questions. So chapter describes what it does as a, a book club, but more fun. And that's how the course is set up. It'll be four weeks Each week, there'll be essentially a reading list or a listening list for podcasts or video list or primary source documents list that I will put together with some notes. And then those who take the class will read them. Uh, And then there'll be a community forum where people can discuss them and argue. And I will get involved with that. And also, I'll do Q&As by text uh, and, if necessary, by uh, video. And uh, over the four weeks, we're going to run from the colonial era, so the, the pre-founding, all the way through to the present day. So broadly, the first week's going to be British colonial America and the origin of the right in England. Uh, the second week will be the founding, state and federal levels, the passage of the Second Amendment, contemporary commentary. The third week will be the Civil War, Jim Crow, the passage of the Fourteenth Amendment, and how the right changed, and then the last week will be the Heller decision, the intellectual shifts that led up to it, and the current state of Second Amendment jurisprudence. So if you want to sign up for it, you can do so. Uh, the URL is actually a little complicated. I'll put it in the show notes for this podcast. Um, but it is get chapter dot app app forward slash at sign cook forward slash guns it's a subtle url (laughs) um and you have more than a month to sign up it's going to start on january 24th of next year
1: awesome i'll look forward to it
2: yeah i think it's going to be fun it's um it's obviously a topic I've spent a lot of time thinking about, and I've written a great deal about this right since when I was at university. Um, but it's nice to do the whole sweep because it is an interesting story, and and it's also one of those rare stories in which a, a right that was widely accepted went away, or at least largely went away and then was resuscitated. Uh, that rarely happens. It also happened to the First Amendment, of course, and the First Amendment was in pretty bad shape at the end of the Wilson administration. Yeah, uh, and was was recovered in the courts and in the culture from about the nineteen sixties onwards. Although it's really under fire again now. Um, but so was the Second Amendment, politically and otherwise. So it's um, it's a story with ups and downs.
1: Well, not to give you an assignment, but I hope you'll
2: write a long essay on this for, for the magazine too. Yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to.
1: I'd like to read it. All right. Well, hopefully I'll see you sometime and we'll do some applied Second Amendment work uh, <laughs> next time. Uh, Peaceful. Uh, <laughs> by, by which wish will go to the range, not overthrow the yeah, government.
2: Come I was going to say. Gonna have I don't know exactly what kind of mood you were in today, Kevin. In <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, I realize that I, I I swing around on that that from time to time, but um, no, I didn't. I have not had to uh, renew a driver's license, or visit a government office, or deal with the IRS in at least a few months. So I'm not currently feeling any revolutionary.
2: Oh, really? Because I actually called the IRS yesterday on a trivial matter and remembered why I don't like the government. The individual I spoke to was perfectly charming and extremely helpful. And for what it's worth, that has always been my experience. It's the reason I was calling and all of the stuff you have to go through to get to that point that makes you want to join the militia.
1: Yeah, you know, I was at the bank the other day and there was a young man in there and um, he was getting a $6,000 cashier's check made out to U.S. Treasury. I was like, yeah, been there. <laughs> I know what that's all about. Oh, really? There's only one reason anyone gets a cashier's check made out to US Treasury, and that's for taxes too. Uh
2: well I, I had nothing like that. I, I had this I won't give too many details, obviously for privacy reasons, but I had this uh, Kafka-esque, and that is always the word you use. I had this Kafka-esque issue where my uh the partnership that I'm in um for a company I co-own uh changed its name. And uh, we filed the paperwork to change the name and the IRS confirmed with us that it had been done, but it actually hadn't. And so the name got changed across a whole range of banks and vendors and other paperwork heavy entities and then failed because from time to time, these businesses have a, a system that checks in with the IRS to make sure everything matches. And so we started getting letters saying, you know, it's not working. And so I called them up. And they said, well, actually, we haven't changed it yet. But um, don't change anything on your end, because we're going to do it now. And then they didn't do it. And eventually, I managed to get through after months of trying yesterday. And she said, well, actually, it was done in September. So now it is it's finally resolved. But I was stuck in this horrible no man's land where half the stuff was in one name, half the stuff was in the other name. I didn't know which one I had to change. And I thought if I do change one of them, then the next day the list is going to invert because that if they do finally, it was just, a, it was a nightmare. But sh- the woman I spoke to was lovely. And that's actually always been my experience is if you can get through and speak to someone, they're fine.
1: Yeah, we were um, had a thing a while back. I, we may have talked about this on the, on the podcast. By the way, having a business like that, is is the good way to make a radical libertarian out of someone? Oh God,
2: I know. <laughs> because
1: if not an anarchist, but we had a thing I just personal income taxes where um you're married and we filed jointly, and I guess on our our joint income tax filing, either my name was first and hers was second, or hers was first and mine was second. One way or the other, and but on the payment we sit in, it was the other way around. So um, apparently, you can't do this. So what? like if, if if so if my name is first on the on the tax um filing, then my wife um is the one who sends in a check or whatever. Um they their system just can't figure out how to credit it. So we kept getting these terrifying uh notices from the IRS that you owe us some staggering amount of money. And um, you know, it was just, I mean, just as much money as you would, you know, typically owe at the end of the year. Um or you know being in tax situation like ours and and it was just within a couple of dollars of what we of, of what we had already paid them you know at the uh, when we filed our taxes and so we figured that it was just not you know being credited and of course they cash the check you know and the money's already gone out of your account but they just can't figure out how to apply it and it took i don't know eight phone calls nine yeah. phone calls
2: to um
1: Figure that out.
2: That's the bit that kills you. I I know we have to go. Before we go, I'll just say I once made an IRS agent laugh uh, for about a minute. When I first came to America, I obviously had to file taxes. But if you're not an immigrant under the law, if you're in the non-immigrant category, you are not allowed to take uh, the standard deduction or any of the deductions on your federal income taxes that. Americans with green cards or uh, immigrant visas or passports can take, and really? I was yeah I didn't know that. yeah, so actually non immigrant visa holders pay more in federal taxes than everyone else, anyhow you well, should yeah, I, I don't have a particular problem with this, but I was very assiduous because I didn't want to be deported, little did I know no one gets deported for this, but I didn't want to be deported, so I filled in my tax return, and I mailed it. And about a month later, I got a letter from the IRS with a check, and they had recalculated my taxes, and they had added in all the deductions that I wasn't allowed, and they had sent me the money that that had generated in the form of a return. Mm. And I, I <laughs> panicked because I thought, well, my goodness me, I've taken money. I'm not allowed. This is criminal, et cetera. So I called up and I said, hello, my name's Charles Kirk. I'm a non-immigrant visa holder. Now, of course, they have no idea what that is. And, and I told them the story. And this lovely woman from, sounded like South Georgia. Just laughed and laughed. And she said that she had worked for the IRS for 25 years and not a single person had ever called her desperately asking to send more money to them and limit the refund that they had been given. <laughs> yeah, they probably didn't me. have
1: an, an internal uh, code for how to figure that out. No, you know, a, I have um, a similar story, actually, that's not um, not IRS-related. I've written about this before, but just you know, dealing with bureaucracies, in, including private business bureaucracies, um, no fun. I went to, uh, an ATM one time and it gave me more money than I had, um, asked for and uh, by $20. And I checked and it hadn't debited my account for that. It had just made a mistake and given me, you know, $20 extra. And, uh, so I called the bank and I figured I could use the money, of course, always, but, um, I figured it would be a good column. And so I called the bank, this is a million years ago, and I called the bank and I told them that I had an extra $20 that had come out of the ATM and I'd like to get their money back to them and I'd be happy to do, you know, whatever they need me to do, but I will only talk to three people. So I talked to the person I called, you can transfer me twice, but if you try to transfer me to another person off that, I'm going to hang up the phone and keep the money. And of course they were not able to do it. Yeah. Oh, really? So. No, of course not. So it's so, was okay, well, thank you for calling. I'll transfer you to the right department. And they sent me to a person, and that person sent me to another person, and that person couldn't quite figure out what to do with it, and so attempted to transfer me to someone else. So I hung up and kept the $20. Well,
2: I think you deserved it because money is time.
1: That is true. All right, anything else we need to talk about? Or is this a, this is sort of an extra-long bonus edition of the podcast? Yeah, these
2: are the, this is the extended play version, the second disc.
1: So I think we missed one within the last couple of weeks, didn't we?
2: I think we made it up. But now we've just made it didn't up we? again.
1: I think we're one short. So. Mm,
2: okay. Okay. All
1: right. Okay, well, I will talk to you next week. Indeed.